Uh, you might have guessed this about me, but I do not enjoy shopping, and I do not enjoy browsing, and I do think that grocery pickup is the greatest invention in my lifetime. To be able to drive to the store and they just put the stuff in the car and you leave, that is amazing. I love that. My least favorite thing to do is wander around the grocery store saying, where do they keep this or that? Uh, I hate it. And so the opportunity just, man, they've got it all for you. It's been picked up. It's in bags. I don't even care if it's the wrong stuff. At least I didn't have to go in there myself. It's wonderful. Now, there was one store that I enjoyed browsing. It was Lowe's. I no longer enjoy Lowe's, though, because six years ago we bought a house and we remodeled it ourselves. And I was at Lowe's two to three times a day for six months. So now when I just walk in, it triggers PTSD for me, going back to that whole experience. But before that, I enjoyed it. We would have to go to Lowe's to get something, and I would browse through the tool section. And what's great about the tool section is that there's this tool, and you're like, man, if I had that. If I had that tool, I could do all of this work and it would be so easy. It would be so much, it would be so much more simple if I just had that laser-guided cordless power tool. Now, the really nice tools, because they're expensive and, and they're easy to carry off, all the really nice tools are locked by having a cabinet, and the demos are chained to the counter. And so if you were going to buy one of those, they would have to come and unlock the cabinet and get it out for you, walk you to the checkout. And I think sometimes as parents, as family members, as, as spouses, we think, man, there is some tool that's locked away, that if I could just get my hands on that tool, it would make it so much easier to be a parent, be, make it so much easier to, to be married, make it so much easier to live life if I could just get my hands on that tool. Well, this morning, I hope to share with you a tool that's missing from your tool belt, and you're not going to find it at Lowe's. You're going to find it in Mark chapter 9. And so let's look at Mark chapter 9 together. We're going to start reading in verse 2. Now, after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up on a high mountain apart by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became shining, exceedingly white, like snow, such as no launderer on earth can whiten them. And Elijah appeared to them with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. This is referred to as the transfiguration. It's this powerful moment where Jesus' divinity comes pouring through. He is 100% God, 100% man. And as Peter, James, and John have seen him previously, they have seen his earthly form. What they're being allowed to get a glimpse of in this moment is his divine form. And Elijah and Moses come down from heaven. They appear there. They're speaking with Jesus. And this is incredible. It's amazing. It's terrifying. And Peter does what he always does in these situations. He says something even though he doesn't know what to say, right? Some of you are this person, right? You don't know what to say, but you got to say something. Peter's not really sure what to do. He's afraid, the passage tells us. So he says something. 
verse 5. Then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And I love that Mark gives us this next phrase because he did not know what to say. He did not know what to say. So he said that. For they were greatly afraid. What's happening in this moment is Peter, James, and John are given this opportunity to see what no one else got to see. They got to see Jesus in all of his glory and his splendor. It's a beautiful, beautiful moment. And it's preparing Jesus. It's leading up to Jesus heading to Jerusalem and the crucifixion. And if you have studied the book of Exodus, and you've read the story of Moses leading the people out of Israel, uh, out of Egypt to Israel, through the, the desert, you, you might notice some similarities because Moses meets with God on Mount Sinai. And just as Moses met with God on Mount Sinai, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up a mountain, and there they're able to see God's glory. Tim Keller points out it's probably these two experiences where we get our phrase, a mountaintop experience. It's this just incredible, amazing experience. When Moses is on the mountain with God, he sees a glimpse of God's glory. And when he comes down, it was so powerful that Moses' face is shining. Now, Moses saw God's glory or a glimpse of it, and his face is shining. But what's happening here is Jesus is not shining because he saw God's glory. Jesus is shining bright because he is God's glory. It's like the difference between seeing someone with a sunburn and looking at the sun. Moses had a burn or a reflection on his face. You, you know what you see when someone, you see someone, they've been on vacation, you go, boy, you got some sun, didn't you? Which is a nice way of saying your face is really red because you didn't put on enough sunscreen. Moses has this brightness on his face. They're not seeing what the people saw on Moses. They're seeing what Moses saw. There's another similarity, because when Moses comes down from the mountain and his face is shining, the people react with fear. What they actually say is, Moses, um, if that's what happens, you talk to God, we're good here. You be our go-between and you go talk to God because we are terrified to go up there and we're terrified if God comes down here. Let him stay up there in the mountain and you go back and forth. And Peter, James, and John, when they see Jesus transfigured, they are also terrified. They're afraid. Anytime anyone comes into the presence of God, the immediate reaction is intimidation because his glory is so powerful and amazing. And anytime anyone comes into the presence of God, they first of all notice how powerful and holy and wonderful and glorious God is, and they also recognize how not so they are, how weak they are, how unrighteous they are. They, they know that they need someone to be this go-between. Peter says, let's build three shelters. And if you 
read the book of Exodus and you see what God's people do, this really makes sense what Peter is saying here because when God meets with the people, he gives them instructions on how to build a tabernacle, which is a place where they can meet with God. It's a place where they can meet with him and worship him. And what Peter is saying is, this is amazing. Let's set up a structure so we can just keep doing this. Let's not stop. Let's just stay here on the mountain. Let's figure out a way that we can get everybody to come up the mountain and they can experience this too. This is the same approach that every religious group has taken. Every religious group attempts to find a way to get close to God. And if they have some experience, they then make that ground holy ground, a holy site, a place where they take pilgrimages to. See, we often think that we need to earn our right to be in God's presence, that we need to earn our right to be near Him, and because that's what we wrongly think whenever we experience a touch of His presence, we don't want to leave, and we want to make that our place that we can go to. Our students just came back from teen camp. They've spent the week at teen camp this past week. I did not serve this past week, but for many years I went. I served as a counselor at teen camp, and what happens at camp is students don't have their phones they don't have all of the distractions of, of everything happening here at home. They are going to worship services every night. There's this focus on God and His goodness, and they be ex- begin to experience His presence. And you know what they say? I don't want to go home. I want to stay here. Because in their minds, they've equated their experience with God's presence with that place. And that's not what's happening. Peter says, this place is incredible. Let's build some shelters here so we can stay here, so that we can gather here. And what Peter is experiencing in this moment is not the right place. What he's experiencing in this moment is the right person. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. Peter says, man, this is incredible. I'll start working on shelters. I will go to Lowe's right now, and I will get the lumber needed to build this so that we can stay here. But God clarifies in the next two verses that this is not about this place. Look at verses 7 and 8. And a cloud came and overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son. Hear Him. And suddenly when they had looked around, they saw no one anymore but only Jesus with themselves. God says, listen to what Jesus has to say. He is what you need. God the Father envelops them in this cloud and he says, this is my son. This is the access. This is the pathway. It's not this mountain It's not this place. It's not this experience. It's Jesus. And friends, hear me. It's not this location. It's not some other location. It's not a campground. It's not the right worship song or the right chord progression or the right fog and lights or whatever it is. It's not any of that. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. And then there is the fourth similarity to Exodus. Jesus takes them up on a mountain. God meets with Moses up on a mountain. They're intimidated. God's people are intimidated at Mount Sinai. 
They build a tabernacle at Mount Sinai. Peter tries to do the same here. The fourth is, when Moses met with God on Mount Sinai, if you've watched Charlton Heston and the Ten Commandments, you know what happened next, right? He meets with God, he receives the Ten Commandments, and then he comes down and he finds what? Everybody is going crazy. He leaves the mountain and comes down to an absolute mess. And that's what happens here. Peter, James, and John are up on the mountain with Jesus. It's this transfiguration. It's this incredible moment. And then they walk down the mountain right into an absolute mess. Moms and dads, I want you to think about the moment when you first held your child. I want, to think of, I want you to think about how much your, your heart was filled with joy and happiness. New parents are really cute, aren't they? New parents are like, oh, my child is the most beautiful child that has ever lived, right? They're not wrong. When I was born, I was nine pounds, 10 ounces. For those of you who are unfamiliar, that's a big baby. I was a big baby. Not only was I nine pounds, 10 ounces, one of the muscles in my eyelid was not fully developed. If you look closely, you can actually see that one eyelid still droops a little bit to this day but it was really droopy when I first was born, so I look like this. <laughs> and my dad says that when they would take like family to go, because back then you would go and they're like, oh, here's all the babies in the nursery, right? All the babies that have been born that week, right? And there's all of these beautiful babies, five, six pounds, and then there's me, nine pounds, 10 ounces. I'm twice the size of any other child and I'm squinting like this. <laughs> my dad said, I think other parents were probably terrified you were gonna eat their baby. <laughs> But you know what my parents thought? My parents thought I was the most beautiful child ever born. And they're not wrong. <laughs> that baby comes and you are just overjoyed. For those of you who aren't parents, you can maybe relate to that moment when you fall in love with that person and your heart is suddenly full of this love and joy. If you're haven't fallen in love, it might be for when you made a friend and you connected with someone and you're like, this person gets me and you felt known and cared about. But in all of those situations, whether it's a new child or a new love or a new friend, you then come home, right? And moms and dads, do you remember when you got home and suddenly this bundle of joy was a bundle of not joy, but mess? and weariness, and keeping you awake all hours of the night, and constantly needing attention, and you felt totally overwhelmed. I can remember not long after Haven was born, um, there was a, a, a group of pastors here in Chandler that would meet together, and uh, they had a, a weekly lunch, and the weekly lunch happened, or the monthly lunch happened, and I did not go, because Haven had just been born, and I think Nicole had gone to like a doctor's appointment, and I was at home uh, with Haven. It was very early on, and they stopped by to see us. And I answered the door, and I was like, please don't come in. Because <laughs> it's a struggle in here right now, Right? It, it, it was like, hey, I'm trying to keep this child alive right now. And it's a mess. And my wife isn't here, and she's so much better at all of this than me. We want to live on the mountaintop. But life happens in the valley. 
We want to live in that beautiful moment of love and joy and happiness, but life happens after that too. Jesus gets down from the mountain and they run into an absolute brouhaha taking place down in the valley. A man has brought his son to the disciples because he's afflicted by a demon, and the disciples who've previously been able to cast out demons are unable to help. They're not able to help. And the religious elite who are there take this as an opportunity not to help, but to pile on and to make fun of and ridicule and argue. And verse 19 shows us that when Jesus gets there and he hears what is happening, he answered and said, O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him, bring this child to me. Listen, when Jesus comes to earth, When he comes to be among us, he is not unbothered or unmoved by what's going on. He's very bothered by what he finds here. We often see him in tears, crying, moved with compassion at the struggle that people are facing. And here, he comes down and he is yet once again confronted with the brokenness of this world and the inability of his disciples to fix it. And he is frustrated because this is not what he intended for his children. This is not the world that he created for his people. This is not the land that he has tried to establish for Israel. This is not what he wanted for us. And he's mad. He's angry with the broken state of affairs. He's got righteous indignation. And I know that you felt righteous indignation. I know that you felt totally justified in being angry. I promise you, no one has ever been more justified in being angry than Jesus. Because he knows the true source of the heartbreak and the hurt that he sees around him. He knows that it's the work of Satan. He knows it's the work of the one who wants to destroy everyone. Last week, Pastor Dustin did a great job speaking about how God works in broken families. And I want you to know that God sees the brokenness of this world and he is heartbroken over it. God sees the struggle that you're facing with your family, with your children, with your spouse, with your friends, and he weeps with you, and he's also angry for you. You know that feeling when you're angry for someone else? Like, it didn't even happen to you, but you're mad about it. You're more mad than they are. Jesus is that way. He's more mad about the sin and the broken condition of our world than we are, because he knows what's really going on. And I need you to see this interaction between Jesus and the father of this child. So look at verse 20 with me. Then they brought him to him. They bring this child to Jesus. And when he saw him, when the child sees Jesus, immediately the spirit, this is the demon that is possessing this child, convulsed him and he fell on the ground and wallowed, foaming at the mouth. Now listen. We could read this passage and we could walk away from it and say, man, anybody that's sick, it's a demon. Or we could walk away from this and say, that wasn't a demon. The child was just, it had an epileptic episode. And there are times in history when anytime someone had the sniffles, they would say, God bless you, because they thought a demon was making you sick. We live in a time and age now where we don't think that there's anything spiritual happening, that it's all physical and biological. 
The truth is somewhere in the middle. We are believers. We believe in what we do not see. And we don't believe in a good God. We also believe in an evil spirit named Satan who has henchmen who do work in this world. And when you read the Gospels, it seems like every time Jesus turns a corner, there's another person struggling with the demon. And my take on that is the fact that Jesus is there and Satan is doing everything he can. He's putting all of his pieces into the middle of the chessboard where Jesus is at. He's pushing all of his reinforcements there. And the child that is possessed by the Spirit sees Jesus and immediately starts to convulse. And when pastor pointed out, this is exactly what happens in the lives of people. Pastors see it all the time. Someone realizes that they're in bad shape, that their life is a mess, that they're broken, that they need help, and they turn to Jesus. And as soon as they turn to Jesus, evil pours it on double time does everything it can to bring in destruction. So the child falls in the ground. He's wallowing. He's foaming at the mouth. The word for wallowing means he's being torn. He's retching. And then verse 21 says, And he asked his father, Jesus asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said from childhood. MacArthur points out that Jesus didn't need to ask this question. Jesus knew the answer to this question. And honestly, it doesn't even really matter how long this has been going on. Jesus can cast out the demon whether or not he's been there for five months or five years. But he's having this interaction with this father because he wants to hear his story. He cares about him. He wants this father to feel known and seen and loved. He wants this father to know, I see what it is that you're facing. I see what it is that you have been experiencing. So the father answers from childhood. And he continues in verse 22. And often he has thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. The demon that is possessing this child is taking advantage of opportunities to hurt the boy. He's causing these episodes when the child is around fire or when he's around water. And notice what the, the father says. He says, to destroy him. The father can see this isn't just circumstantial. This isn't coincidental. It's when he's around the fire. It's when he's around water. It's, it's when he's near something that could be dangerous that these episodes happen. And he falls directly into them. Listen, there's nothing evil about water or fire, but they can both be dangerous. And evil loves to take what could be dangerous and use it for evil purposes. Satan will use whatever he can to inflict the most destruction. That's what he's been doing. For generations, he used plague and famine. For generations, he used war. For generations, he used venereal disease. For generations, it's been drugs. For this generation, it's identity. He will use whatever he can to bring about the most destruction. Listen, parents. I believe in a good God, and I also believe in a personified evil 
that wants to destroy our kids. And there are times that I challenge you, and I might challenge you about your kids' access to a phone. Is there anything evil about a phone? No, I got one right here in church with me right now. But it can be dangerous. It can be used for evil. And Satan will use whatever he can to bring about the greatest amount of destruction to destroy the most lives. And Jesus is mad about it. He's angry about it. The Father goes on in verse 22. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus says to him, and what Jesus says here is see, that first part is if you can. Jesus asks back, if you can. Like, what do you mean, if you can? Don't you know that I can? You've brought him to me. Don't you know that I am able? But this father is struggling with doubt. He's already brought his son to these disciples. They're not able to help. Jesus says, if you can, believe, and all things are possible to him who believes. I want you to see verse 24. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Verse 25, when Jesus saw that the people came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying, Deaf and dumb spirit, I command you, come out of him and enter him no more. And the spirit cried out, convulsed him greatly, and came out of him, and he became as one dead, so that many said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when Jesus had come into the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? 29, so Jesus said to them, This kind can come out by nothing but prayer. The disciples want to know why they couldn't cast out the demon. And Jesus says, well, you have to pray. You see, the disciples are asking why they couldn't do it. And when I hear this, I hear people saying, why can't I get my spouse to do this or that? Why can't I get my kids to realize this or that? Why can't I make this change in my life? Why can't I? Why can't we? Why, why, why? God says, because it only happens through prayer. They're asking, what tool am I missing from my tool belt? And here's why they're asking that. We think, we wrongly think and believe that when we come to God, everything's going to be awesome. We treat Jesus like magic. And here's why we're missing it, okay? This is why I want you to have your Bibles open still. We're going to go back. We've read the transfiguration. We've read what happened. But I want you to see the conversation Jesus had with them on the way down the mountain. Look at verse 9. As they came down from the mountain, he commanded them that they should tell no one these things that they had seen till the Son of Man had risen from the dead. Jesus knew people weren't ready for this. But when he rose from the dead, it would be the appropriate time. So they kept this word to themselves, questioning what rising from the dead meant. They, they still don't understand what Jesus is talking about. And so they ask him, Jesus, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? 
Hear me, this is important. Hang with me, okay? He answered and told them, Indeed, Elijah is coming first and restores all things. And they're referring to a prophecy that said that Elijah would come, that he would be the one who was the forerunner, that he would prepare everything for Jesus to arrive. Jesus says, yes, this prophecy is true. And how it is written concerning the Son of Man, that he must suffer many things and be treated with contempt. But I say to you that Elijah has come. And they did to him whatever they wished, as it was written of him. Here's, here's what Jesus is saying to them. You're looking for Elijah still, but he already came and you missed it. It was John the Baptist. You know why you missed it? You know why they missed it? Because they think the same thing that we think. When Elijah comes, everything's going to be great. Everything's going to be amazing. He's going to be successful. He's going to accomplish everything he wants to accomplish. But that's not what happened to John the Baptist. John the Baptist was imprisoned and beheaded. He was killed. Jesus said they did to him what they wished, just like it was written of him. See, the disciples expected Elijah to arrive and everything to go well. They expected it to be a success. They thought if it really was Elijah, everything would be fine. They don't see how Elijah, this coming of Elijah could be John the Baptist because John the Baptist, it didn't go so well. Hear me. We wrongly think that we need to find our own way to God and we need to earn the right of his blessing. And we wrongly think that once we find him, everything will be just fine. No problems. And we might tell ourselves, if, I, if I'd really found God, I wouldn't be having these problems. If I'd really found God, I wouldn't have these issues. And we start to question, have I found Him? If I really found God, I'd be able to make my children mine. I'd, I'd be able to help my spouse see what this is. I'd be able to do this like the disciples. If We should be able to cast out this demon. Jesus is saying to the disciples, Elijah did come and you missed it because you don't understand that suffering is part of the plan. Charles Spurgeon preached a sermon on this passage and he called it the secret of failure. Because everyone's looking for the secret to success, but the secret is failure. Just recently I heard John Mark Comer where he said, one of the reasons so many people have so few stories of the hand of God in their lives is because we maintain so much extraordinary control over our lives. We keep everything so controlled that there's no room for God to step in and do the miraculous. He says, you've never even given God a chance because God comes to you in your vulnerabilities and your weaknesses and you're pretending like you don't have any. And this is especially true when it comes to parenting. More than any other area of our life, we don't want anybody to think we're messing up our kids. We pretend to have it all together. When our mindset is that we shouldn't struggle or that we shouldn't suffer or we don't want anyone to know that we struggle or we suffer, we miss out on what God is doing. And it's in that struggle and it's in that suffering that he does a powerful work in us. Years ago, I was, in a, I was in a room and the pastor said, I want you to think about the most spiritual person you know. He said, I guarantee you that everyone here just thought of someone who has gone through massive suffering and tragedy and hardship. And God showed himself strong in the middle of that heartache. And that's how they're so close to him. 
but we avoid it. And we pretend it isn't there. In that sermon that, that Spurgeon preached on the secret of failure, they had a college for ministers there. And in the middle of that sermon, he looked at those ministers and he said this, it would be good for you young brethren in college when you go to your first pastorate to get battered and have all manner of troubles. That's, that's great promotion for Spurgeon's college. Listen, you want to go on the ministry, the best thing that can happen to you is everything goes bad. Because you will be the grander and better servants of God in after years when in your own weakness it has driven you back upon the divine strength of God and you have learned to trust not in man much less yourself but to cast yourself confidently upon the Lord. You know what we see in this passage? Mankind is not up to the task of dealing with the brokenness in our own hearts, and in the lives of the people around us, and in our messed up families, but we don't have to be. Think back to that father speaking to Jesus. If you can help him, if you can help him, if you can, have, have compassion. That's not perfect faith. That's not having it all together. That's desperation. Jesus says, if I can, don't you believe? And the man says, I believe, but help my unbelief. Matthew tells us the same story. In addition to telling us what Mark tells us here, that he cried out with tears, Matthew also tells us that he falls to his knees. I, I don't have a, a new tool or a hack or a tip or a trick for you to add to your parenting tool belt. But I can tell you that the greatest, the greatest principle you can grab a hold of, the greatest help in your parenting, in your marriage, in your friendships, and your life is humility. It's having the humility to say, God, I can't do this, and I need you to do it. Immediately the father cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe, help my Unbelief. You know, the father could have lied and said, absolutely, I believe. Absolutely, I know you can do it, Jesus. Instead, he said, I believe, but help my unbelief. The son was healed, not because the father's faith was perfect. The son was healed because the father called on and believed in the one who is perfect. Our kids don't need perfect parents. They need humble parents who are relying on God. And our parenting and our marriages, our friendships, our church, it comes down to the gospel. We can't have it all together. We can't do it on our own, but we can put our hope and trust in the one who can. Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer.